take your bulletin out. You can track along with the sermon this morning with the outline that's in the bulletin. Find 1 John chapter 5. This morning we turn the last corner in 1 John. We've been working through this book all summer. We're now in the fifth and final chapter of 1 John, so we can see the end in sight. After this morning, we have three more Sundays where we're going to work through the remaining uh, verses here in 1 John. Uh, We only have three weeks left, which means there's only a few weeks left for me to remind you of something that we've talked about all summer long as we've worked our way through the book of 1 John. It's the idea that John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. We've tried to be very clear on a couple of issues as we've gone through 1 John. One issue is, how does a person receive eternal life? The answer to that question is, you receive eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's how you become a Christian. But that's not the question that John is wrestling with in this book. John's wrestling with the question, how does a Christian know and have certainty and have assurance that they really do have eternal life. That's why John wrote this book. And that idea comes from 1 John 5.13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe by God's grace, you believe in Jesus, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the way we end up knowing that we really do have eternal life is we pass John's tests. There's three of them, and they show up all the way through this book. All three of them actually show up in this passage. There's a moral test, a social test, and a Christological test. Do you keep God's commandments? Do you love other believers? And do you believe the truth about Jesus? All three of those tests show up in our passage, 1 John 5, 1 to 5. Now, all of that we've talked about all summer long. And we're going to cover those three tests this morning. John's going to say a few things that sort of help us understand each of those tests a little bit better. One idea we've got to get square in our minds before we dig into this passage in particular is this. When John talks about being born of God, quote unquote, being born of God, he's talking about new birth, or if you want to put a theological term on it, regeneration. He's talking about the idea that Christians have been born again. It's an idea you meet very clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. John is talking about Jesus who has come into this world, and he says, to all who received him, what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means you believe in his name. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And these children were born... Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There's several things that are worth pointing out there. One is, in John's mind, there's a connection between being born again, being born into God's family, and believing the truth about Jesus. We'll see that in our passage this morning. Faith in Jesus and being born again, those two things always go together. Another thing that John is really clear about is that regeneration, being born again, is not something that we do. It's something that God does. It's not something that comes about through our bloodlines, 
our natural human descent. It's not something that comes about because we just decide to make it happen. It's something that comes about by the will of God. And if you keep reading in the Gospel of John, you'll come to chapter 3. Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, and this is what they talk about, regeneration, being born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is the one who causes a person to be born again. You don't do that. The Holy Spirit does that. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can't control the wind, and the Holy Spirit's kind of like the wind. You certainly can't control the Holy Spirit. You don't have any control over that. The wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit does what God wants the Holy Spirit to do. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It's not optional. There's no back road into the kingdom. There's no secret door that gets you into the kingdom. If you want to enter the kingdom, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why, why the must? Why the absolute necessity? It was because of what the Bible says about us apart from God's grace. Apart from God's grace, we are not simply born into his family. We're actually born his enemies. We're not born physically children of God. We're born physically children of wrath. We don't show up on this earth naturally following Jesus. We show up on this earth naturally following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We don't show up alive. We show up spiritually dead. To steal a phrase from the late R.C. Sproul, we are all guilty of cosmic treason. We have offended the high holy God of the universe. We're guilty. And what we need is to be brought into his family. That's regeneration. That's being born again. That's being born of God. It's when God in his grace and his mercy takes one of his enemies and brings them into his family. That's the heart of what John is talking about in 1 John 5, 1 to 5. So here's the big idea. Very simple. Christians overcome the world because they have been born of God. Christians overcome the world because they have been born of God. They've been born again. They are regenerate. Take your copy of the scriptures. Look at 1 John 5. We'll read verse 1 to 5, and then we'll pray. Word of God says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we acknowledge that you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our devotion. 
You're worthy of our love. You are worthy of our obedience. Father, we pray this morning as we listen to John, as we listen to the words that your spirit inspired John to write, we pray that your word that's living and active uh, would pierce our hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us hearts that are eager to receive your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. It's interesting to look back through church history and to find some of the names that non-Christian people have called Christian people. I'll give you just a few examples. Number one, atheists. That was one of the first things Christians were called. In the Roman Empire, Christians were called atheists. And you say, well, that sounds strange. But if you think about it, it makes sense. The Romans worshipped a pantheon of gods and goddesses. They went to temples and they saw statues and idols uh, of these gods and these goddesses, and the Christians refused to participate. The Christian says, I, I can't worship that thing that you can see. I can't worship that statue. And the Christian said, we worship an invisible God. And the Romans laughed at this idea, and they said, well, you must be atheists. You don't worship our gods. You must be some kind of atheist. Muslims have variously at different times in history called Christians people of the book, an acknowledgement of our devotion to the Bible, and in times where Christian-Muslim relationships were not as positive, infidels, people who are in rebellion against Allah, people worthy of destruction. What about the Protestant Reformation? The Reformers were splitting away from the Catholic Church. They reached the conviction that the church could not be purified or corrected from within. They needed to separate They caused a schism, and many of the Catholics who remained in the Catholic Church looked at the Reformers and said, you guys are nothing but schismatics. You're tearing the church in two. In the United States, maybe we talk about Bible thumpers. It's the idea that somebody is maybe overly aggressive, overly zealous in their eagerness to quote a Bible verse or to beat you over the head with the Bible verse or to talk about their faith. It's used in a pejorative sense. My guess is if you've never been called a Bible thumper, in the days to come in the United States, you'll have an opportunity to earn that nickname. If you're going to stay true to the Scriptures, people will not like it. In Australia, they don't call them Bible thumpers. They call them God-botherers. It's not that they are bothering God, it's that they're bothering other people about God, and they just wish that you would stop. Christians have been called all sorts of different things. Here's a few things that the Bible calls us, things that God calls his people. Christians, believers, children of God, children of the light, children of promise, sons of the day, sons of the kingdom, friends, brethren, sheep, saints, soldiers, witnesses, stewards, Fellow citizens, light of the world, salt of the earth, the elect, the chosen, the called, ambassadors of Christ, heirs, branches, members of the body, living stones, beloved of God, followers of Christ, sons of Abraham, disciples, servants, the people of God, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, vessels of honor, the righteous, strangers and aliens, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Just to give you a few. In this passage, 1 John 5, John gives us a few more. And he doesn't really give, a, uh, give us these names in noun form as he's calling us these things, but he's describing what Christians do, and he uses the Greek word 
nikao. It's a word that means to conquer or to overcome or to be victorious. It's a name that is rooted, if you go back and study Greek mythology and Greek history, in a goddess known as Athena Nike. She was a goddess, according to legend, who helped Zeus in his battle with the Titans, and she helped win a great victory. And so the Greeks worshipped her as this goddess of victory, this goddess of conquering, this goddess who helps you overcome. John's not really concerned at all with Athena Nike, but he uses the verb that's related to her name, nikao, to conquer, to overcome, to be victorious. And he says, this is who you are as a follower of Jesus. You're somebody who overcomes. You're somebody who conquers. You're somebody who will be victorious over the world. That's in verse 4 and 5, and we're going to get there. Before we get to verse 4 and 5, we've got to talk about verse 1, 2, and 3. And we've got to ask and answer this question, how does John describe those who have been born of God? What is the description of a person who's been born of God? There's no surprises here. There's three tests in 1 John. There are three descriptions of the person who has been born of God. So here we go. Number one, those who have been born of God believe... Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. If you're born again, if you are regenerate, one of the marks of your life is that you believe the truth about Jesus. You believe that he's the Christ and you believe that he's the Son of God. Look at 1 John 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the promised Messiah the Savior that God sent into the world to live for you and to die for you and that he rose three days after dying and being buried. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's the Christ? Look at verse 4. John talks about this victory that has overcome the world and he says the victory is our faith. And he follows it up with verse 5 and he says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Believing in verse 1, faith in verse 4, believing in verse 5, all these words are connected in the original language. Our English word faith is pistis in Greek. Our English verb to believe is pistuo in the Greek. In our minds, sometimes we make a distinction between faith and believing, but in the biblical sense, a person who believes has faith, and a person who has true saving faith is a person who believes, and this is the person, John says, who will overcome the world. What he says here is that our faith is not some sort of blind optimism that it's all going to be okay in the end. Sometimes we use the word faith in that sense. How are you doing? Are you struggling? Well, you know, I'm trying to have faith that it's all going to be okay in the end. That's not the kind of faith that John's talking about, not the kind of believing. Sometimes we use the word faith and the verb believing as in, oh, I have faith in myself or I believe in myself, but that's not what John's talking about. John is talking about faith in the person in the work of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Do you believe that he's the Christ 
in the Son of God. If you do, John is saying it's because you've been born of God. It's a mark of those who have been born again. Here's the second mark. Those who have been born of God love other believers. First mark is the Christological test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? This is the social test. Do you love other believers? Look at 1 John chapter 5, the middle of verse 1. John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you've been born of God, you've been born into his family. And guess what? You're not the only one. Other people have been born into his family. And if you love the Father, John says, you also love his family members, the other people who have been born into his family. In John's mind, you don't get to say, I love the Father, but I can't stand his people. You say, man, spend five minutes in my Sunday school class. You'll understand. No. You say, oh, if you only know the people who sit by me in church and how loud and off-key they sing, then you'd understand. No. If you say that you love the Father, John says, you also love others who have been born of him. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. This is not hard. John is just talking about the love that ought to exist between believers, between Christians, and especially between people who are part of the same church family. One of the saddest things that I have seen as a pastor is when I get up close to a family and I see a family that is fighting and hateful and divided and they're just at each other's throats. I think about a family I knew in a previous place we lived. I think it was the poorest family I've ever known personally, the poorest people I've ever met. And they were constantly at each other's throats, hateful towards each other, fighting with each other, ready to devour one another. It was tragic to be up close and see it. Most of the time they were fighting over all the stuff they didn't have. I think of another family in another place that we lived, family that was part of our church family. I think they were the richest people I've ever known personally. They had an incredible amount of money. And when you get up close, it all looked good from the outside, but when you got up close, you realized these people hate each other. They're ready to devour each other. And usually it was over all the stuff that they had really doesn't matter if you got a lot or you have nothing. It's a tragedy when you get up close to a family and you see people who hate each other and who are fighting with each other and who are at each other's throats. John would agree with that, and John would rightly add, it's also a tragedy when you see a church family doing that. People in the same church family who just hate each other. They're just eager to fight with each other. They're ready to devour one another. They're quick to turn on each other. That should not be how Christian people are known. That should not be the reputation of the church. The reputation of the church, as John is laying it out, is that we are people who believe the truth about Jesus, and we are people who love 
other believers. John MacArthur in his commentary explains it like this. He says, the new birth brings people not only into a faith relationship with God, but also into a love relationship with him and his children. If God in his grace has caused you to be born again and you believe the truth about Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, here's what's also true. You will love other believers. And did you notice in verse 2, John does something interesting in this passage. It's unique in 1 John. He starts to take all of these tests, moral test, social test, Christological test, and he refuses to let us see them as three separate individual tests. He just weaves them all together, and he basically says, if you're doing one of them, you're going to do the other one, and if you're not doing this one, you're not going to be doing that one. He says it in verse 2. Here's how you know you love the children of God. You love God and you obey his commandments. Meaning, if you don't obey God's commandments, that's the moral test. You can't keep the social test loving his people. You can't separate these things. It's not a buffet line where you say, I'm going to pick this test today, and I'm going to pass on the jello salad. You go through the line and you take all the tests. They're not three separate strands. It's more like one strand with three cords braided together. So here's the third mark of those who have been born of God. Those who have been born of God keep God's commandments. They keep his commandments. Look what he says in verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If you say that you love God, the overriding trajectory of your life The big picture view of your life is that you are a person, if you truly love God, who keeps his commandments. Not perfectly, but that's the direction that your life is headed. And look what he says at the last part of verse 3. This is important. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Those of you who have kids understand that sometimes when you're at home with your kids, you give your kids instruction. You say to your kids, hey, I need you to go pick up your room. Hey, I need you to take the trash out. Hey, I need you to go in the backyard. It's been a week. Pick up after the dog. I need you to go do this. Sometimes when you have kids, they just look at you and say, no. But a lot of times what your kids do is they look at you with this look. And they get up and they move very slowly. And they stomp off and they sulk off and they go and they do exactly what you told them to do. But the look on their face their body language, the way they walk out of the room, do you know what your kids are saying to you? Your kids are saying, you are a burden to me. I just want to play video games. I just want to watch YouTube. I don't want to do that. I'm going to do it, but I'm not happy about it. This is what John says when it comes to God and his commandments. This is the love of God. This is how you know you love God. We keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The person who has been born again 
does not open the Bible and come across commandments about sexuality, marriage, relationships, gender, and say, what a bummer. What a limit on who I am as a person. What a moral straitjacket that prevents me from being who I want to be. The person who's been born again comes across those commandments and says, this is good. This is a good God giving good commandments. This is who he would have me to be. I'm in. You don't view it as a burden. If you've been born again, you don't read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that you need to forgive people who have wronged you. You don't read that and say, oh, Jesus, but you don't know how they wronged me. You don't know how many times they wronged me. Jesus, you are asking for too much. If you only understood my situation and my circumstance, you would not ask me to do something so difficult. You don't view it as a burden. You've been born again. You look at those commandments, even when they're hard, even when they're gut-wrenching, even when you don't know exactly how to go forward and you say, this is good, it's not a burden on me. It's not a limit on me. If you're a follower of Jesus and you come across commands in the Bible that say, you ought to be the kind of person who shares your faith, who talks to other people, somebody who's an eager witness for the gospel. You don't come across that and say, oh, what a weight to carry around. I got to talk to people about Jesus. You come across those commandments and you say, this is good. This is who Jesus wants me to be. This is not a burden. You embrace it, not as a limit to your freedom, but as something you delight in. Look at these verses from the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I love your commandments as much as I love money. Not just a little bit of money, a lot of money. Your testimonies are my delight. Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Those are the words of somebody who has been made alive by God's grace and who doesn't look at these commandments and say, oh, more rules? Enough with the rules. Can't we just say, get along and be nice? Isn't that enough? The person who's been born again doesn't look at God's commandments as a burden. They look at them as their delight. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, the question we still have not answered is this. How do we understand the claim that Christians, quote-unquote, overcome the world. How do we make sense of that? I can remember as a kid, my favorite cartoon was Animaniacs. I can remember the excitement I felt in my heart for the bell to ring at the end of the school day and to either get on my bike or get in my mom's car and to go home and to know if we get home on time, Animaniacs is going to be on TV. And I got just enough time, I can go get a snack, and I can sit down in front of the TV. Hopefully mom won't ask me to do anything, because then I'm going to groan and moan about it. But I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to watch this show. And my favorite part of Animaniacs was Pinky and the Brain. Two lab rats, and every night when the scientists go home, they get together and they say, let's take over the world. 
That was the thing. Every time, pinky in the brain, we're going to take over the world. And the brain would come up with this plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Pinky would mess it up every time. And they never took over the world. But for a grade school kid, that was great television. And I look forward to watching that. Can the rats take over the world? In 2020, it might happen. I don't know. The rats might win. Humans have tried this. Here's a list of people who have tried to take over the world. Genghis Khan, Alexander, Augustus, Napoleon, Hitler. Men who genuinely set out to take control over the world. All of them fell a bit short. And yet, John says this. 1 John 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world, is victorious over the world. How do we make sense of that? One of the ways we make sense of it is to understand what John means by the world. He's not talking about geography. He's not talking about square miles or square kilometers. He's not talking about continents. This isn't a game of risk where you're trying to take over the the entire world, one nation at a time, one continent at a time. When John talks about the world, He's not talking about real estate. He's talking about the fallen mass of humanity that stand in defiance to God and resist and oppose his rule. That's what he means by the world. The entire world system that you and I are born into that stands in defiance to God. And what he says is, if you've been born of God, that rule of defiance and opposition to the creator will not beat you in the end. God has brought you out of that. You were guilty of cosmic treason with the rest of the world. God has brought you into his family. You have been born again. And the world will not defeat you. The world will not conquer you. The world will not overcome you. The world will not have victory over you. You, who have been born again, will overcome the world. How's that possible? I think John gives us a hint or two in some of the other things he wrote in the Bible. And I want to look back and I want to look forward. So let's look back to the Gospel of John and let's remind ourselves of this. Our victory is assured because of Jesus' victory. Our victory is assured. It is certain. It is guaranteed because of Jesus' victory. Look what we read in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, there's our word, overcome it. The darkness did not conquer the light. The darkness did not get victory over the light. Jesus said this on the eve of his crucifixion. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world In this fallen mass of people in rebellion against God, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I've conquered the world. I've earned a victory over the world. He's looking forward one day to the cross, three days to the resurrection. And he's saying to the disciples, fellas, it's as good as done. I have conquered the world in my life, in my death, in my resurrection. I have done everything that needed to be done for you to have victory over the world. When we read this verse, 
that those of us who have been born of God overcome the world. There's no chest thumping here. There's no boasting. There's no bragging. There's no bravado. There's just thankful humility as we look to the cross where Jesus overcame the world. And there's no expectation that we're going to have the biggest and best political party. We're going to have the biggest and the best nation. There's actually an expectation that just like Jesus overcame the world through suffering, his people will also overcome the world through suffering. The disciple is not above the master. So one, we look to the cross and we realize our victory is assured because of what Jesus has done. We can also look to the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, and we can find this idea. Our victory is contingent on our endurance. It's contingent or dependent on our endurance. You can look at Revelation 2 and 3. Read those chapters later today. They're letters that Jesus sent to seven churches. And most of those churches were called in one way or another to repentance. All of those churches were called to endurance to endure to the end, to be faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. In each of those letters, towards the end of the letter, there's something said to the effect of, to the one who overcomes. Your translation might say, to the one who conquers. This will be your reward. To the one who finds victory, here's what the Lord will do for you. There's an interesting balance that we hold here as we think about this victory over the world. On the one hand, we look to the cross and we say, Jesus did everything that needed to be done. There's nothing left unpaid or unfinished. Our victory is certain because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. But we also hear Jesus speaking to his church saying, endure, press on, keep believing these things about me. Hold on to them. Don't compromise. Love each other. Show love to each other. Don't fight with each other. Don't do that. Keep my commandments. Do the things that I've told you to do. Don't view them as burdensome. View them as freeing. View them as this is who I'm making you to be. And we hold both of these things in balance. We say the cross accomplished all that needed to be accomplished, and yet Jesus is calling us not to spiritual laziness or lackness, but to endurance. And when we hold on to those two things, we have the hope of victory, of overcoming, of conquering. Let's pray.